The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. It is on the grounds of the cleansing work of the cross of Calvary that the believer may stand with boldness before the God of holiness. The Savior, who took the sin on the cross, now sits at the Father's right hand to make intercession. It is right that the one who was a slave under sin shall be given the mitre of authority and reign because he has become the possession and the co-ruler as bride with the bridegroom who made all things possible in his love. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach, which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Intercessory Prayer. If you were falsely accused of a crime, convicted, and sentenced to death, you would need an advocate who would never give up until you were set free. You would need him to intercede on your behalf with legal and judicial authorities tirelessly appealing your case and looking for new evidence that would prove your innocence. Satan accuses believers before God. But Jesus Christ is our advocate, who constantly intercedes on our behalf. He appeals your case to the Father, and His wounds from the crucifixion are irrefutable evidence that your redemption has been fully accomplished. The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Intercessory Prayer. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We praise thee most of all for thyself, as thou dost daily reveal thyself to our hearts through the word and in the experiences of life. We thank thee that thou art loving and gracious toward us, and we praise thee for the redemption that made this possible. Thou hast dealt with our sins and brought us, through the blood of thy Son, into the position of sonship. May each listening heart have an awareness of the presence of life through the Lord Jesus, and thus return to thee the love that thou dost desire from us, who are creatures who have been made sons. We ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I continue our study in the third verse of the sixth chapter of Romans, baptized into Jesus Christ. In our sequence of studies of our identification with Christ in the whole eternity of his being and work, we come now to the fact that we are identified with our Lord in his present ministry. Christ is not yet seated upon his own throne. The men who wrote the creed that goes under the name of the Apostles' Creed were wise theologians. 
it has been established in solid scholarship that the creeds existed very early in the life of the church and that there were already creedal statements in the New Testament church even before the completion of the written word of God. While J.N.D. Kelly of Oxford, the great authority on the creed, has swept aside the tradition that would make the creed a supernatural thing, he has also established its great antiquity. Many Bible students have established its real basis in Scripture and its undistorted reflection of biblical truth. The men of the creed put in the words, He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God. When we understand some of the implications of that phrase, we can understand some of the blessings that are involved in our own identification with Christ in His present enthronement. First of all, it is necessary to point out that Christ is not seated upon His own throne today, but that He is temporarily seated on the throne with His Father. He is not ruling today as King of the Church, but He is acting in His capacity as our great High Priest, and He will not assume His qualities of kingship until the time of His return. This gives us the explanation of his promise in Revelation 3.21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Now we shall consider his occupancy of his own throne in due course. At present, we are concerned with the temporary quality of his present work. One of the most important passages in the entire Bible is the 110th Psalm. It makes a statement that is referred to in the New Testament no less than ten times. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David wrote down a conversation that took place in heaven between God and God. Within the Trinity, there have been many conversations, and some of them are recorded for us in the Bible. Among them all, this one is perhaps the most important. In our English version, it reads... The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. In the Hebrew, as in the Old Testament quotation, it reads, Jehovah said unto Adonai, Sit thou at my right hand until I shall have set thine enemies as a footstool for thy feet. It would be possible to turn aside at this point and write a volume on this psalm and the meaning of its sevenfold quotation in the New Testament establishing the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, the nature of the Trinity, affirming the divine plan and purpose, announcing the eternal work of Christ as high priest, proclaiming the doom of the forces of evil in the world, assuring us of the final triumph of Christ over all his enemies, and by implication, confirming the hope of eternal peace and righteousness over all of God's creation. We shall repeat the great verse, emphasizing but one word in it. For once more we see the great importance of the little words of Scripture. The Lord Jehovah said unto my Lord Jesus Christ, Sit thou at my right hand until, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Here is the definite teaching that the present position of Christ is a temporary one. This place at the right hand of God was taken when the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven and it shall last until the end of this age when the kingdom of this world shall have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The day shall surely come when the Lord Jesus will rise from his present seat on the throne of the Father and shall lay aside the robes of mediation which he now wears, shall gird upon himself the sword of the justice of God, 
and shall come forth to complete the work of the redemption of the world. Redemption by blood has been accomplished. Redemption by power is yet to come to pass. For the present, the Lord Jesus Christ is seated on the throne of God and is doing one particular work, that of intercession. We read in Hebrews 7.25, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Wesley caught this truth and put it into a great hymn. Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in thy behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all the race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Now because of the revelation of the word of God, we can stand on its lofty summit and gaze upon the action which is taking place at the throne of God today. Even now as you hear these words, the Lord God the Father rules over all the universe. He sits as God and as judge over all. For the moment, he has permitted that the enemy of souls, Satan, shall continue to exercise his power until the day when it shall be demonstrated to the acknowledgement by all men, angels, and demons that there is no possible blessing for anyone except through the grace of God manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ. It must be realized that man can do nothing ultimately for man and that everything which proceeds from man has always rested under the curse of God. Today, Satan still retains his position as prince of this world and God of this age. Furthermore, he still has access. Satan has access to the throne of God, even as he did in the days of Job when he appeared in the courts of heaven to answer for his deeds and to bring accusations against the people of God. There are many reasons why God permits this action of the enemy, but a discussion of them would take us far afield from our present purpose. This work of Satan is one of the things which shall be brought to an end at the second coming of Christ. But at present, the power to overcome the work of the enemy is being made available for those of the true believers who will accept Christ's present work by faith. The end of these enemy charges is announced, for we read in a passage which describes the final execution of the sentence which was passed at Calvary in Revelation, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down which accused them before our God day and night. It is in counterbalance to the accusations of the enemy that the Lord Jesus Christ carries on his present work of intercession in our behalf. There is an example of the attack and the defense set forth before us in the Old Testament in a story that is not often read and studied because it occurs in a chapter in one of the minor prophets, a section that does not receive the attention that it deserves. We read in the third of Zechariah, the following account of the warfare in the heavenly places. We read, And he showed me Joshua the high priest. Not, of course, to be confused with Joshua, 
the successor to Moses, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with these changes of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head, and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. Now we note from this passage, first of all, that the high priest who stood in the presence of God on behalf of the chosen people had filthy garments, which had been made filthy by Satan himself. And then the latter accused Joshua in the presence of God. It's a great picture of the fact that sin came to mankind from the devil, and that then the devil turns to God and tells him that his eternal holiness and justice are such that he, God, cannot do anything for man. Now this would be true, of course, if there had not been the intervention of Christ as the Savior dying on the cross. This was the one thing that Satan had not foreseen. Noting that God had created man to enter the position which had been abandoned by Lucifer for his fall, the devil takes the attitude that he has caused the plan of God to fail because man has become a sinner. And surely a holy God cannot bless a sinner. He had not comprehended the eternal fact that Christ would be made sin for us in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ, thus making it possible for God to do everything for us. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. It is on the grounds of the cleansing work of the cross of Calvary that the believer may stand with boldness before the God of holiness. The Savior, who took the sin on the cross, now sits at the Father's right hand to make intercession. It is right, since the sin has been paid for, that the filthy garments shall be removed and clean garments of righteousness given to the sinner. It is right that the one who was a slave under sin shall be given the mitre of authority and reign because he has become the possession and the co-ruler as bride with the bridegroom who made all things possible in his love. I'm sure that this same action is being repeated in heaven today. The devil may say to God, of you or of me, look at that person down there on earth. Do you call that a Christian? Is that one whom your holiness can tolerate? What kind of a God are you? What kind of a God are you to have men and women like that for your friends and followers? And the Lord Jesus Christ shows his wounds, saying, Father, that is one of mine. That is one of those whom thou gavest me before the world was. That is one of those for whom I went to Calvary and shed my blood. The only answer that the Father can give, holy, just, and righteous as he is, is to count us as accepted in the beloved Son and counted as perfect in his sight. Now when we see that we are identified into the present work of Christ, we see that we are joined not only to its effects in ourselves, 
but also in, the, in a participation in that work for others. We can readily comprehend the wonder of our being in the effects of that work, for it includes our present sanctification, our cleansing, and our growth in spiritual knowledge and truth. But it also includes the very important work of our prayers on behalf of others, since the Lord is now interceding on behalf of them. It should be understood that God cannot hear any prayers except those that come to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And again, he that climbeth up by some other way is a thief and a robber. During his days on earth, there were attempts made to approach the Lord Jesus by human means, and he reputed these attempts with finality. We have the incident packed with action when Jesus Christ broke forth in scathing denunciation against the leaders of his people. So vehement were his words, so bold his position, that men drew away from him and thought that he was beside himself. They sent for his family. We know the name of Jesus' mother, Mary, and we have the names of four of her children, which she bore to Joseph, namely James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, as recorded in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 55. Some of these at least came with Mary at the call of those who wished to have Jesus led away quietly. A spokesman approached him with a message. We read, while he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood outside, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy, thy mother and thy, thy brethren stand outside, de desiring to speak with thee. But Jesus answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brethren? In his next sentence he stated the proposition. In Matthew 12, 49 and 50, he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now intercessory prayer is removed from the sphere of family relationship or exalted position and put down on the level of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whosoever doeth the will of my Father. Now there is the basis of prayer. There is the right of access. What quality this gives to the prayers which we truly and sincerely offer for one another. I must admit that the study of such a subject makes me water at the mouth with a spiritual hunger and desire that men and women should pray for me if they know the Lord Jesus. I often think what I have seen accomplished through my ministry, and I know that it can be explained divinely by the grace of God and humanly by the providence that has brought many people into prayer partnership with me to uphold my work before the throne of God. In another passage, the Holy Spirit has told us that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. If we analyze this, we find an important source of spiritual power revealed. First, of course, the righteous man is not righteous in his own righteousness, but in that which is provided for him through the work of the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Savior was made for us righteousness, and it is in that righteousness that we can stand before God. The prayers that God will hear, therefore, come from those who have been born again and who comprehend the right relationship of a soul with God and who do not insult the Father by approaching Him carelessly 
or without due acknowledgement of the person and work of the Son of God, who has made all approach to God possible. Secondly, there must be a proper attitude in prayer. Of course, I'm not speaking of physical attitude. You can pray in any position. I believe there are 18 different physical positions mentioned in the Bible. But our spiritual attitude must be right. The English translation states that the prayer of the righteous man must be effectual, fervent prayer. This has led some people to believe that there had to be the generation of human heat. The word fervent in English carries with it an idea of temperature. The Greek of the passage has but one word, which has been rendered by the two words in English. The word is energeo and has been misunderstood by those who know too little Greek because of its apparent relationship to the word energy. Now, it is not necessary to work up a sweat in prayer. The Bible describes the prayers of the pagans who shouted and danced and even used knives to cut themselves in their frenzy of prayer, though it was prayer to the devil. We find that story in the story of Elijah and the offer of the priests to Baal. Now, there is no such thought in Christian prayer. The Lord Jesus Christ stated that we were never heard for our much speaking. And while it is true that the Lord Jesus was in an agony in the garden, that agony cannot be borne by us. And if there is any groaning in prayer, it is specifically stated that the groaning that comes from the Holy Spirit cannot be uttered. There are several different Greek words used for expressions of the idea of power. And if these are understood in relationship with each other, we shall find that our prayer may be a quiet thing. But nevertheless, it shall pervade the whole of our being and shall reach to the throne of God. There is a Greek word, dynamis, from which we get our words dynamo and dynamic, and which expresses inherent power, the power to reproduce itself. There is another word, kratos, from which we get autocracy, plutocracy, aristocracy, democracy, and similar words. This expresses the idea of strength that is exerted, power that is put forth with effort, as in the exercise of authority in government. There's a third word, iskus, which means strength as an adornment, and which is there even though it is not being used. But the fourth word, energia, is a strength that is put forth from within in effectual operation. It does not carry with it necessarily any of the muscular strength or horsepower, as does our English descriptive, energy. When we understand this, we can see the kind of prayer that God wants us to bring to him. He has told us that he is seeking true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. This means then that we are to comprehend that we have been baptized into Christ's tabernacle, into his tenting, into his humiliation and submission, identified with him in his present work. Now, this means that we should recognize our position as those who have been made righteous through his blood and that our position is an exalted one that carries with it the obligation of prayer for those round about us who are in need. Never perhaps is a Christian more like Christ today than when he is selflessly looking out upon the needs of those around him and encompassing those needy hearts with the love and intercession that stands between them and Satan and that commits them to the Father's love and grace. Let us not forget that if we have been born again, we have also been baptized into the prayer life of Christ, 
and that we are to enter into the lesson of prayer so that our lives shall be overflowing fountains of prayer. Now, this does not mean that we shall be drawn away from the world in any sort of monastic contemplation, God forbid, but that we shall pray without ceasing in the midst of the work of the world. The prayer may be no more than a quick glance toward God, but the Father sees and knows, and we shall in our thoughts all be brought home to him, live his life, his life of love, and his life of service toward others. And our God and Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall take the word to each heart. How eager we are to have children of thine grow in the knowledge of thy truth. So wilt thou take these weak efforts of our hearts, these cold thoughts of our mind, and fuse into them that which shall be added the presence of the Holy Spirit, that we may see thee in spirit and in truth, know thee better and love thee more. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus Christ is now performing his ministry of intercession as our advocate and high priest. We should imitate him by committing ourselves to intercessory prayer for the needs of others. We hope you've benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled Intercessory Prayer. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse anytime, anywhere around the globe via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at AllianceNet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free, 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, Intercessory Prayer, or simply request message number R6-15. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, How the Holy Spirit Relates to You. For many Christians, the Holy Spirit remains the most mysterious and misunderstood member of the Trinity. Controversial and contradictory teachings about His person and work further cloud the issue. This free booklet cuts through the confusion with clear biblical truth. You will take a significant leap towards spiritual maturity when you understand who the Holy Spirit is and how He works in the life of a believer. Ask for your free copy of how the Holy Spirit relates to you when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from the broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at AllianceNet.org. 
Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.